Hello, it's Kerry and Rachel. Rachel, what are you doing? You got all the good words. <laughs> Welcome to Dirty Vegetables, a podcast where we discuss hot topics in the vegan world, exposing the dirt on animal industries and sharing our complete adoration for vegetables. 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 Welcome along to another episode of Dirty Vegetables. This one is titled Lab Coat Cow. And it's because this episode is going to delve into the topic of lab grown meat or cultured meat. The main points of this episode are going to be we'll start off with what is lab grown meat and how is it made? Then we'll talk about the major companies working on lab grown meat and the costs involved. Next, we will cover celebrity investors and the benefits of lab meat versus factory farmed meat. And then we're going to finish off with public opinions and our opinions. And the question that we're going to focus on in this episode is, does lab-grown meat fit into the vegan philosophy? So before we dive on in, how are you doing, Kerry? Well, I'm feeling a bit crap. (laughs) I have a cold. So this is why my voice sounds like this, very muffled and sniffly. If I sneeze throughout, big apologies. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't been sick in so long. Like literally it's been so long. Well, apart from like COVID, haven't been, haven't had a cold in genuinely years. So this feels strange. I feel like it's lasting longer than it should. It's been like three days. I'm like, oh, I'm so sick of this. I'm so sick of like blowing my nose. But um. Apart from that, I'm working a lot, so I'm like slightly stressed. I'm like planning this whole festival on my own, which is a lot of work. But yeah, that probably is not helping the cold, I would say. But um, I've just, I assume I picked up the cold on the plane because I've just got back from Italy and France, which was delightful. And I'm really glad I was full health then. (laughs) But I think maybe it's partially due to just not eating as many vegetables. <laughs> I genuinely think this could be it. Now, maybe five days is a bit of a push to for your immunity to break down, but I don't know about you, when I just haven't been eating as many vegetables, I've, all I was eating was bread and pasta and like <laughs> carb city, although we weren't actually eating that much. I was traveling with people who were at a lot less than me so that was a bit of a culture shock as well. <laughs> I don't know if this has happened to you or not, but um, so yes, all in all, I'm okay. (laughs) How are you doing, Rachel? Well, that sounds like quite a lot and it's understandable that you're feeling a little bit stressed with all the work stuff. I can't imagine how much logistical stuff has to go into organising a festival. It's a huge operation and there's normally a massive team of people working on it. So doing that on your own is a lot. And yeah, I definitely think the vegetable thing is true. I feel a massive difference in my body when I don't hit the same amount of fibre as normal. And that's often a thing that I find with holidays as well. Like I can't wait to get home and like eat a massive fruit salad or something. And I was determined when we were in Croatia and we were doing that festival that I'm finally recovered from that we really thought we did it right this time because we were having like superfood smoothies morning and night before and after leaving the van for the festival. And we were eating like massive salads in the van before heading out as well and trying to be as healthy as possible. We were taking multivitamins galore. There's this multivitamin called, well, not multivitamin, supplement called 5-HTP. Have you heard of it before? 
yeah yeah we're taking that every day yes i have bought that before yeah to be, to be honest it might be a massive placebo which is fine by me but i actually really think that it did help take the edge off of it on the days after the festival to feel a bit more mellow not happy mm. but not terribly sad either just a bit more mellow um yeah like replates is that a word replates your replenishes <laughs> sure replenishes your serotonin right yeah so it, like builds you back up all that serotonin that you lose yeah partying exactly <laughs> but yeah how am i right now i'm doing good we did a massive amount of driving last week we drove all the way from croatia to sweden which i should have taken a note of the kilometers to say now but uh it's a lot i'm not sure how many but it, it was something like it was like 15 hours of driving from Croatia to uh, the Polish uh, port where we got a boat. And then since we've been in Sweden, it's like another eight or nine hours to get to the yoga retreat where we're going to be for six weeks. So it's a hell of a journey. Um, but it's been fun, though. Um, so I'm good. I think I'm just a little bit fed up of driving, which I'm aware is a first world problem. But a lot of van lifers don't do this much driving. They'll drive for like an hour max and like do it very chill. And they're not in any rush to be anywhere at any time. Whereas it feels like we're just like smashing the kilometers in, filling up with fuel all the time, spending loads of money. But I think it's all going to be worth it because now that we're in Sweden, I feel very, very content here. I feel like this could be my future home. It's like, wow beautiful like the nature three quarters of the country is made up of forest so there's just nature everywhere the climate is perfect i swear that it's like the climate i've been looking for because like it's during the day the sun is shining so brightly and it's nice and warm but it's not hot and then at night time there's like no residual heat and um it's cool and you can sleep fine so it's kind of the best of both worlds like during the daytime you can be in shorts and t-shirt and actually feel like you're getting a summer and you can tan and everything but then it cools right down in the evening I don't know what it's like in winter it might be like really really dark and cold which I've heard but kind of used to that from living in Scotland and I quite like seasons so I feel like and it's just so beautiful like all the houses with like the wooden paneling with different colours and like all the people are really really friendly and I just feel like the Nordic countries have kind of organize themselves better than a lot of the other countries certainly in Europe their governments are a lot more ethical social issues are prioritized over others and Finland the neighbor to Sweden was voted the happiest place to live four years running so I'm feeling good about it I don't know I'm thinking maybe if I can find some sort of master's course here that could be a cool thing to do and we could like find a permanent parking spot for our van and live here for at least a year or two. Octave could get a cool tech job. And then I could try and teach yoga in like a really beautiful yoga studio until I've got my masters. Then I could be some sort of counselor. <laughs> I don't know. I'm imagining the future. I feel like we could live here. We both really love it. And it's not that expensive. A lot of people say that it's crazy expensive, but that hasn't been our experience at all. So yeah, there you go. Sweden. Yeah, I've never been. I've always wanted to go. That's a that's a bold statement to say after being there, what like how long have you been there like a week or a few days <laughs> yeah it's probably like five days or something i think i'm gonna move <laughs> but i haven't said that everywhere if i said that to every place yeah. i went to then fair enough but this is the first place i've said that here and ibiza they're the, the highlights so nice far. nice i actually loved italy i know you've spent so much time in italy and um, we were at the very very south in genoa but i just i love the vibe of it 
all the streets were very narrow and there was just like all the restaurants just had chairs like sitting out on the streets you know that yeah. kind of vibe Al fresco. Like, they weren't trying too hard mm-hmm. to make it fancy and make it like the way the UK does it's just a race to find out who has the most Instagrammable food yeah. <laughs> it's literally yeah. what it is whereas this was just like simple back to basics like really lovely wee atmosphere big fan no, I think that you've you've picked up the culture quite well then that's a big part of Italy it's like simple simplicity done well especially with their food it's good quality ingredients used used minimally so moving on to our dirty ingredient of the episode so this is an ingredient that me and Rachel think is so important in the kitchen in a vegan kitchen and a vegan lifestyle so today we have chosen hummus is it H-U-M-M-U-S? Is it H-O-U-M-O-U-S? <laughs> I would say the latter. I think hummus is very uh, American maybe. But So yeah, it's basically like a chickpea dip, but it can also be made with fava beans as well, I believe. And it is basically blended chickpeas, garlic, lemon, tahini, olive oil and different spices. So a lot of people think that hummus originated in Greece. It's really popular if you've ever been to Greece. Um, But it actually originated in ancient Egypt, most likely. So there's many historical sources. And the earliest mention of hummus dates back to Egypt in the 13th century. So chickpeas were, and they really are abundant in the Middle East and are still eaten very, very regularly. I actually associate it very much with Israel and the Middle East I feel like they are big big on hummus as well and that word hummus actually means chickpea in Arabic so <laughs> love that okay so most common uses number one has got to be a hummus and falafel wrap uh, that immediately comes to my mind when I think of hummus and I think that's how most supermarkets cafes restaurants use hummus speaking of which I wanted to share this story so because I mentioned before we did a crazy drive from Croatia to Sweden this past week um, we were passing nearby Berlin in Germany and we were like we can't not go into Berlin like we've got to at least like have a walk in it because we're going to be so close by and Berlin's a really cool city um, but we had to keep going because our boat was like the next day or like we just we had no time to stop really so we like literally drove, drove in to like the suburbs I guess parked the van walked to this falafel place bought a falafel wrap ate said falafel wrap got back into the van and continued driving which was just the most random experience you wouldn't expect to ever like have like a 20 minute visit to a city in another country but that's something about van life that I actually really enjoy because you have these kind of really unexpected unorthodox encounters with towns and cities and other places um i often have that when we do our laundry like because normally like laundromats are near cities where there's more people so we'll like visit a city to only to do our laundry and i just there's something about it that i really love um but yeah back to hummus (laughs) how we (laughs) how we use it so we, I, we always mention fern and apologies if we're starting to make people's eyes roll because we're saying fern again but her cookbook really is banging and she has this ultimate vegan sandwich that is one of my go-tos I make it all the time and she mixes hummus with mustard and miso paste and 
I believe that's all. And then that is what's used to spread on like crusty bread um, before adding lots of other yummy things into this sandwich. And it's so good. It just works really, really well. So that's definitely my favorite use of hummus. How do you use hummus? Um, so I used to always, when I started eating hummus, I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> it doesn't taste like anything. I remember thinking that, like, why is everyone obsessed with this? And then I started eating like, um, what do you call that? That like caramelized onion hummus. And then I started eating the red pepper hummus, which is really popular in like supermarkets. So then that's how I got into hummus. I was like, oh, these are actually have some flavor here. But then as time went on, I started to, feel like they were quite artificial tasting and then I moved back to the just the OG hummus and now I'm like obsessed with it <laughs> but my favorite is just a wee carrot stick right in there straight up no faffing about wee carrot stick unreal I love hummus it works so well in like a little buddha bowl as well but I have to say the best hummus of all <laughs> is Sainsbury's organic hummus this is the best one Lots of people say there's that like one that's called Sabor or something. It's sort of a fancy brand of hummus, but it's too smooth for me. I like a wee chunk here and there, a little bit. Honestly, Sainsbury's organic hummus. Get the big tub as well. You can get like an extra large tub. The best. Have you got like a preference <laughs> of favorite hummuses? Or like what's it like traveling about? Is there like oh. the same variety of humai? <laughs> I've actually been pleasantly surprised traveling because lots of countries do hummus really, really well. And when we were in Croatia and Germany most recently, we bought tubs of hummus in both of those countries and we couldn't believe it. The Croatian one was incredible. It was like topped with this wild garlic pesto. Mm, very nice, but it was very smooth. And I actually quite like the smooth ones. I do like the Sainsbury's organic one, definitely. But if I was to ho- if I was to do a homemade hummus, I wouldn't want it to be that smooth. And my favourite one to like make at home, which by the way, guys, you should really get into that because it's so easy to make. Um, I've never done it. Oh come on! All you need is a Nutribullet or like a high performance blender. You don't want to be using a a bad blender because it's just not going to be fun. So like, and then smash your chickpeas in there. Lots and lots of good quality olive oil, lemon juice, tahini, garlic blend it up done that's it if you want it to be extra smooth you can like pop the chickpeas out of their skin but who's got time for that and there's more nutrition in the skin so keep it on and then my favorite variation of that is to add beetroot yeah and it comes out really really pink and lovely yeah actually when i was in nice there they did this amazing beetroot hummus i'll have to post it on the insta it was like unreal yeah i love that it doesn't taste too beetrooty either it's not like too earthy it's just like a nice little little zest of it but yeah I've never made my own do, do you just use like a tin of chickpeas yeah because I remember reading online like you should get the dried ones don't ever use tin chickpeas no maybe that was just like one blogger who was trying to be fancy yeah I mean people do have opinions on it like and like I said a lot of people think you should remove the skin and that's probably what is smooth about that the really really smooth ones they're skinless but yeah I just buy the, mm. the cans of chickpeas yeah but make sure you rinse off the brine or keep it on the side for aquafaba for different dishes. But I find when I keep the brine, like I'm not really careful with trying to limit the amount of brine that's going into my hummus. I find it's just different and it makes me a bit bloated. So there you go. So moving on to nutrition, it turns out that hummus is actually super good for you. And here's some facts and research um, from the source Live Science. So 
The healthy fats contained in hummus are polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats, and eating these types of fats may help improve blood cholesterol levels, decrease the risk of heart disease, and help control blood sugar. Hummus also has around 15 grams of fibre per cup. So according to a study published by the Journal of Nutrition and Food Sciences, Adults who ate chickpeas or hummus on a regular basis had a lower body mass index and waist circumference when compared to people who didn't eat hummus. <laughs> adult human... Adult human... <laughs> Adults? Uh, I thought I said humans. Adult... Sorry, mm, this is going to be hard to put together now. Adult hummus and chickpea consumers were 53% less likely to be obese. That's quite a big statistic there, or percentage. 53% less likely to be obese. And they were found to be 51% less likely to have elevated glucose levels as well. And they contain a wide range of vitamins and minerals, as well as folate. Folate. They've got vitamin K, zinc, iron, magnesium and vitamin C. So I feel like hummus as our dirty ingredient for this episode is quite relevant to the subject matter of lab-grown meat because hummus and chickpeas in general are such an example of Mother Nature gifting us with a nutrient-rich food which is really, really healthy and it can be good for preventing and reversing certain diseases um, and it shows the power of plants. And is it true that we're maybe moving too far away from this when we're considering these new technologies and lab-grown meats? That's something we're going to be pondering in this episode, um, so more to come on that. So yeah, moving on to the topic of this episode, which is lab-grown meat. Uh, I just want to start off with a little disclaimer that um, obviously because Carrie and I aren't cell biologists, we weren't naturally experts in this topic area. So we've gathered a lot of information from different sources. And in order to give these sources their due credit, we've got a comprehensive show notes on our website, www.dirtyvegetables.com. So please check there if you want to learn more or you want to check up on some of the things that we've said because we're definitely not trying to convey that this knowledge is our own. So cultured meat or lab-grown meat, what is it, Rachel? So cultured meat involves the production of meat outside of the animal and in vitro. So specifically cultured meat is produced from animal cells, cultured in a growth medium in a bioreactor, rather than being directly sourced from slaughtered animals. So cultured meat is therefore produced in a radically different way compared to conventional livestock methods. And this is a hot topic because in the last couple of years, it's grown a hell of a lot of traction, a hell of a lot of a lot of funding and investors. And it's thought to be in market within the next few years, which is quite, quite big, quite big. So for me to just explain a little bit better about how it's made. So stem cells are taken from the muscle of an animal, usually with a small biopsy under anaesthetic, and they're put with nutrient salts, pH buffers and growth factors and left to multiply. So just to simplify that process even more, you're taking a sample of an alive animal, putting it into a bioreactor with other substances, allowing it to multiply. Normally they put scaffolding in at this stage because a big criticism with the first um, lab meats that were created was that the texture didn't really resemble kind of like the muscle and fibres and texture that you um, you expect with, with typical meat. So 
it was more just like this ground mushy texture so now they've introduced a lot of companies have introduced this scaffolding that the um, cultures cling to and form around so that then at the end of this process you have a finished product which is edible and um, can be consumed by humans and is remarkably similar to the real thing because you've got actual animal genes and gubbins in there (laughs) so this all came about around 2013 when the first burger was served in a london news conference and it had a massive cost of three hundred and thirty thousand dollars to create a tiny little burger and if you look this up it really was tiny and this funding came from the co-founders of big companies like google and sergey brin whatever that is um But the burger's creator, so Professor Mark Post, he was quick to point out that this was only the start of making meat from animal cells. So this is the very beginning. So it's not like once this goes into circulation that everybody's going to be going and spending $300,000 on a burger in a restaurant. It's not going to be like that. So I guess a big goal of these meat companies, these lab-grown meat companies, is to work on it a lot scientifically to reduce that price down to make it much more accessible so it's a massive achievement that they created this and it just shows us how far the industry had to go before commercially viable cell-based meat could actually be a reality so originally in order to grow the meat they used like a blood serum which was used from bovine fetuses they got this blood serum to help grow it But actually, they're working at the minute on changing that to actually a plant-based growth serum to help uh, produce the meat. So this means basically that the only piece of meat that is being taken, the only animal that is being used in a sense, is the initial cell that is taken from the cow. Whereas originally they were using still blood to help this grow. But hopefully that won't last for too much longer. And um, in the following years, Mosa Meat, which is one of the companies that makes this lab-grown meat, have had many breakthroughs and aims to bring it down to that commercial price so that people can actually yeah, buy it. Yeah, it's not, it's not um, on, in supermarkets yet. It still has lots of regular, regulatory hurdles to go through, but some companies have managed to reduce the cost of that because they've been able to make the bioreactors that are more cost-effective and just the scale i guess and the amount of investment that's gone into it has allowed them to come up with new pro- like new processes and new ways of doing it so some big names that are working on this cultured meat or this lab grown meat um, i'll list off some of the companies or startups we've got super meat masa meat alf farms which are making meat in space shiok meats bifitech micro meat and mia and mia tech so there's lots of people and lots of brains um, getting involved with this now. Um, and I'll, I'll go into a couple of those companies in a little bit more detail. So Supermeat is a food tech company founded by Ido Savir and Kobe Barak and Sheer Friedman in 2015. And this company is located in Tel Aviv and has about 20 employees. And Supermeat focuses on producing lab-grown chicken using in vitro cultured cells in a safe and controlled environment external to the animal's body. This kind of clean meat will require significantly less resources for its production, which is 99% less land, 90% less water, making it both a healthy and sustainable food source for the coming century. 
So yeah, that 99% less land and 90% less water is how much less resources this this form of chicken production uses compared to standard broiler chickens. So that's quite big. Mossy meat, we've already spoken about them. But um, it's a company which was made fam- made popular by its founder, Dr. Mark Post, who produced the first burger. Just when looking at those different big names in the cultured meat sphere, it's really interesting to go onto their websites and see it's all very clean, very refreshing websites. I think they've done a really good job of like marketing this clean piece of meat. And it's it goes from the burger, which was the initial one that was made to chicken that you just talked about. Some of the companies are even making fish as well, using crabs and crustaceans. So this is like a big, big operation all in all. So it's going from all the scales of all different animals. And you said about Aleph Farms making meat in space. So they're actually working out ways where astronauts can have fresh meat whilst they're in space or fresh food in space rather than just tinned food and vacuum packed food. So this is one of the ways that they can do it. And the first piece of meat has actually been cultured in space by this by this company. So it's really fascinating. Um, and they're really thinking outside the box with things like this. I think for astronauts, it's so much more beneficial for them to eat fresh foods in general than to always be eating tinned foods because you just don't get the same nutrition from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really, really interesting idea. And another company to mention here is Future Meat Technologies, founded in 2018, has shortened the manufacturing process to two weeks for their lab-grown meats. With a patent-pending method, they say, allows for higher production yields of cell-based beef. And the startup's technologies enable producers, farmers and retailers to manufacture biomass and produce it and process it locally. And the company hopes to get costs down to $10 per pound by 2022, which is the year we're currently in. So have you done it, Future Meats? We'd like to know. So yeah, what stage are we currently at with development? So currently it's only Singapore that has given regulatory approval. Um, and are taking their product to market. But it's thought that this cell-based meat, also known as cultured, cultivated, slaughter-free, cell-cultured and clean meat could be a common sight in supermarkets across the West in the next three years, according to the Institute of the Future in Palo Alto. And the global cell-based meat market is predicted to be worth $15.5 million by 2021 and $20 million by 2027. And one report estimates that 35% of all meat will be cultured by 2024. I think this is something to invest in, to be honest. This is still at a pretty new developmental stage. Yeah. So I think it's funny because when I went on to all of the different websites, all of them said, like, support us, like, join the tribe. Yeah. You know, essentially invest in this mate. And hey, I don't know. I think it might be kind of a good idea. <laughs> it's something that's really, really going to take off, I think, in the next years. And as, as those studies have said, that it's like really on the way. Yeah, I think they're very close to releasing it, but they just a lot of places there's so many rules and regulations to make sure it's safe to consume and you know obviously something that's brand new like that you might not know the consequences of it until it's in circulation for a long time so moving on to the benefits of lab meat versus factory farmed meat we've already mentioned a couple of them but um just to give a nice little juicy list here so one report found that protein made with precision fermentation 
another name for lab-grown meat, will be 100 times more land efficient and 25 times more feedstock efficient than uh, factory farm meat. And additionally, these processes are 10 times more water efficient and 20 times more time efficient. Growing meat in a lab eliminates the need to slaughter animals. It also reduces the amount of land, water and other resources that you need to produce meat. If done correctly, it can even lower carbon dioxide emissions. The other potential environmental benefit includes reducing water pollution, biodiversity losses and deforestation. And while estimates vary, one study found that cell-based beef is projected to use 95% fewer global greenhouse gas emissions, 98% less land use and up to half as much energy. It also significantly reduces the amount of antibiotics needed, which are widely used in agriculture and contribute hugely to worsening antibiotic resistance. And since the animal cells are extracted humanely and grown in a facility rather than within the animals themselves, cell-based meat has the potential to all but eliminate animal cells suffering. So another thing that is a real advantage of cultured meat, lab-grown meat, is actually help with the growing population. So the extent that we're at now is there's 811 million people undernourished worldwide according to United Nations study and there's like 2.3 billion people who are struggling with access to food and this is recorded in 2020. So at the minute, lab cultured meat is very expensive. So right now, this isn't really a solution to the growing hunger problem across the world. But I think with innovation and ways that we can get that cost down, that it's possible that this could be a solution to this worldwide problem. So at the minute, we're using very expensive bioreactors and different mediums that are very expensive. But there is definitely potential of this being modernized and these costs being lowered as the the lab meat industry grows and grows. And this would be an amazing way to feed the world and get the world nutrients without having to slaughter more animals than are necessary. And on top of that, you know, a lot of these countries that are undernourished, you know, they just don't have the land to grow foods, to grow fruit and vegetables. Obviously, you know, me and Rachel would say that would be the, the better idea, but that is just something that is just not working at the minute. So if there's a way, if this is a possibility of, you know, helping people who are in extreme poverty, I think that that could be amazing innovation for the world. And another thing that is really pushing the popularity of these lab-grown meats is the amount of celebrity investors that are putting a lot of money into this different brands of this lab meat. So these investments can do a number of things. They can massively help the production of it. So we could have more scientists working on it. We can make it better and probably we'll be able to get it on in the stores sooner. But even more importantly, it'll speed up the rate of public approval to these new foods. So if people's favourite celebrities are endorsing these products and people like that we really, whose morals we trust, then this is an amazing way to get the public to trust these brands and trust that they're doing right by us in some way. So these investments have propelled production capabilities such as Future Meat, which is one of the brands, and they have reported that rather than $18 in early 2021 for a pound of 
this lab-grown chicken, it now costs around $7.70 instead. And I think celebrity investors is an amazing way to sort of bring attention to it. And I know, Rachel, we've talked about this in a previous episode about how celebrities who are vegan has really propelled the vegan movement forward. And, you know, if this is a way of causing less suffering to animals on some level, I feel like this can only be a good thing and you know these are celebrities that maybe not all the time but some of the celebrity I would definitely trust and I know that some of them are actually vegan as well. So yes yeah, some of these celebrity investors we've got Leonardo DiCaprio we've mentioned him before he's a huge advocate for the whole vegan sphere and environmental issues and in September the actor announced that he invested in two cell-based meat companies Al Farms and Mossa Meat. We've also got Mark Cuban typically placing his bets on plant-based companies on Shark Tank, which is like the American uh, Dragon's Den. Uh, Mark Cuban recently invested in a cell-based company that makes pet food. Cell-based pet food company Wild Earth caught the attention of the reality TV investor securing a $23 million investment package in September. And then Bill Gates is a big name that we should mention here. Bill Gates invested in Upside Foods to help the company bring cell-based chicken to the market in the United States, along with investments from meat giants, including Cargill. Upside Foods has been able to scale up production, open, opening opening an engineering production and innovation centre with the capacity of producing 400,000 pounds of cultivated meat per year. So the scale is real we're getting closer and closer to this being viable and it being out in the supermarkets so yeah moving on to like public opinion there's mixed views with whether the public would be super keen to jump on the bandwagon of uh lab meat and this is just one source but it surprised me um and A recent study from the University of Sydney and Curtin University found that 72% of Generation Z, and that's people that are born between 1995 and 2002, wouldn't be keen on eating lab-grown meat, despite the fact that it eliminates the need to slaughter animals. Um, So I found that very surprising, that statistic, because I thought it would be our generation especially that would be very open-minded to it surprising but contrary to that more than 95 percent of people in hong kong are willing to try cell be- try cell based meats and this was done by shock meats in one of their studies and i, I believe that's the company that's just been um, approved for market in singapore yeah i think we have to be a little bit cautious about when the cultured meat companies are the ones doing the <laughs> the research so maybe take it with a pinch of salt but I do think it's probably different around the world because if you look at like how the different meats that are eaten in places like Hong Kong China there'd be a much wider array of meats whereas you look at westerns and they're all like not even just westerners I would say people in the UK and America are probably like oh well only eat the chicken breast no bones please whereas even in France you know they'll eat like the tongue and the brain and stuff so I think it's very very dependent how open people would be Um, And that's dependent on where they come from and what their meat eating habits are. So moving on to our final point, I think the big question is, has science gone too far to satisfy our obsession with essentially the taste of meat? And are we so addicted to the taste and texture that we actually go to real extremes even though plant-based meats already exist, are we going too far? 
And I think it it's a real reminder here that whole a whole food plant-based diet is optimum for our health. And I've been reading a lot in a book called Optimum Nutrition for Vegans, which talks about how whole foods, plants, uh, fruits and vegetables are so much higher in antioxidants, which you just don't get from meat at all, whether it's lab grown or from the animal directly. And eating a whole food plant-based diet also reduces risks of diabetes, heart disease, and it it essentially gives you a longer life. There's so many studies that have looked into this. Vegan studies are few and far between, to be honest, because veganism is slowly gaining popularity. So there's not as many studies on it, but there are a lot of studies on vegetarians and pescatarians as well. So essentially people who aren't eating meat at least. And I guess the benefit of growing lab grown meat is one of the real benefits is they can, it's so controlled you know, they know exactly what is in this cell. So that really eliminates any chemicals, antibiotics, cancers, etc., which are within normal meat that you would get from a cow or a chicken, which you don't know what's in it. I know I've heard a lot of, I've heard online before and I've seen awful videos of, of butchers just cutting out cancer cells out of animals um, before selling it. So they're not actually getting rid of that meat at all. They're just actually selling that meat anyway. However, even through the use of cultured meats, this actually won't eliminate the torture that is found for other things such as eggs or milk. We've got some other episodes on cows and chickens that you can hear a little bit more about this and what goes on behind the scenes. So it isn't just the meat that the animals are being tortured for as well. So our opinion, how do you feel about eating lab-grown meat, Kerry? Would you do it? Yeah, I'd be up for it. I think... I know the main reason why I don't want to eat meat is because of the slaughter that goes into it. You know, I think maybe similar to you, and I know like probably most vegans enjoyed meat when they were younger and the taste of it was always enjoyable. So if I could still have that, I think in particular fish as well, because that was something I found very, very hard to give up. If I could have that without the torture that went through it, then I would, I would be very, very interested in trying it. Although it's funny, when I first found out about this, I was like, oh my God, that's so weird. I would never do that. Like, you don't want something that's grown in a lab. And I think because I've heard about this for so long, people talking about this, that I've just kind of got past that point of it. Oh, it's grown in a lab. But I think when you look on, and this is a real marketing thing, but when you look on the websites, they look it looks really innovative and modern and they make it sound like really good for the planet. It's good for your body in a sense, or certainly better for your body because it doesn't have the chemicals. The same as the fish, it doesn't have the microplastics and the mercury in it that a f- normal fish would have. So yeah, I'd definitely be up for trying it. What about you? Yeah, I think my opinion kind of um, mirrors yours a lot. Uh, I would definitely be up for trying it and I definitely could see that being something that I eat when I eat out as like a treat and things like that and maybe occasionally now and again I would cook it at home but I think it wouldn't I wouldn't want to adopt it as an everyday food that I feel like I can't have a meal like without some sort of lab meat in it Um, although it's important to think about protein and have a protein source and everything that you're eating I feel like I've learned so much about the whole food plant-based diet that I'm fairly convinced that that's what's best for me 
and best for everyone, arguably, day to day. So I think I could see it as like a treat. Um, but I also very much enjoy these other companies like Beyond Me. I think they're revolutionary and their products blow my mind and they really satisfy that kind of meat itch for me when I feel like I just want to bite into something with a different texture than a bean, for example, for protein. I do feel like Beyond Meat and these other plant-based uh, meats do kind of satisfy that for me, but I'd be curious to see how it, these compare to the lab meats in terms of nutrition if we've been able to really uh, cultivate the lab meats to such a point that they're so clean, are they better for us than Beyond Meat, which has been shown to have quite a lot of salt in it and fat? Yeah, I'd be curious to learn more about that. But I'm definitely, with much, I definitely think that it's a huge step in the right direction and I do think that it's the future for meat consumption. And we know that many people are not prepared to give up meat without a fight, so this could be the solution. So finally, is lab meat vegan? So if we consider the definition given in the previous episode, Milk My Almonds Baby, that veganism is avoiding as far as possible and practical the exploitation and cruelty to animals, could we therefore say lab meat fits into this definition? So I think to a certain extent, yes. In terms of cruelty and exploitation of animals, this method is far more ethical as no animals are dying. We do not need to create huge quantities of livestock and keep them in crowded, inhumane conditions where they undeniably suffer, deprived of basic innate behaviours and ultimately animals are not getting sent to slaughter. So looking at practicality, this is way more practical. There's a lot less land water uses, resources and processing time in general. Um, so it's a lot less polluting and harmful to our planet. So if we think about the large bioreactors and specialist knowledge in order to produce these meats, that this is less practical, however, than a traditional way of slaughtering animals, albeit um, a lot more labor intensive for sure. However, we also have to take in other parts of the vegan philosophy, which extend a little bit past the definition that we said before. So like living in harmony with nature, um, and sometimes looking at this lab meat doesn't fit so nicely you know I think as a vegan we talk about how we don't need those things and we shouldn't use animals for our own gains and even though it is something quite minute you know you're taking a tiny little piece of the animal like a like a peppercorn size of the animal's flesh it's not actually doing it any harm but at the same time, it's still a part of an animal and we shouldn't use animals for our own gain in this way. And it sort of seems like this new technology feels like humans are trying to be God. You know, we're creating foods that shouldn't exist. And until we have this widespread consumption that just seems very unnatural sometimes, like we said before, we don't know what the impact will have on our health and if the meats are biologically the same when we eat them. I think when we look at farms and the rules that farms apparently go by and what the reality is, there's a stark con contrast between the negative side effects for the animals. So this could be going down the same line. Are they really just taking a tiny little piece, peppercorn sized piece of meat or are they doing a lot more harm that we don't know? If they're doing this, what else are they doing? I'd like to believe that they are being honest and the fact that I think a lot of celebrities are investing in this, I assume they're going to really look into that because they wouldn't do that blindly. 
And then finally, like we always talk about the benefits of eating a plant-based diet, all the nutrients that you get from that that you simply can't get from meat. Even though this lab-grown meat is monitored a lot more than other meats, you know, it still can cause things like high cholesterol and, you know, harmful effects in the long run because that's not always to do with what's in the meat like chemicals, but actually just we shouldn't be eating that much meat. But again, that comes down to how much we'd be eating in the first place. So there are many things associated with modern human civilization that you cannot find mirrored in nature, like to name but a few, smartphones, jet skis and chemotherapy. So surely lab meat is another development that shows our intellectual progress as a human race. And it is my wishful hippie thinking that we should all return to our roots in nature. And of course, we know fine well that people won't give up meat without a fight and not everyone is open-minded to the Beyond Burger, so maybe this is the answer. So yeah, kind of like this kind of die-hard desire that I have for everyone to return to nature and have their own vegetable plot and be whole food plant-based vegans um, as healthy and sustainable and happy as possible probably isn't a reality. Um, And I don't think we should tear apart things that are super high-tech and removed from nature because many things in modern life are incredibly high-tech and animals in their world couldn't even begin to conceive what we use in our everyday life and lab meat could just be another example of that. So in this episode, we have talked about lab-grown meat, cultured meat, and we've looked at its production, developments, benefits, public and personal opinions, and discussed whether or not it is actually vegan. So I think the overarching answer to, is it vegan? Well, yes and no. We've talked about both sides of the argument. It comes up great in terms of exploitation of the environment and animal welfare, but it doesn't really feel removed from any naturally occurring ecosystem that we humans or modern humans are not are part of. And we are yet to really fully understand the drawbacks that could occur um, caused by this lab grown meat. So I guess our resounding answer is can't we just try to be more plant based? But I know some people might not always go down that route so I guess there's progress in some way so for any listeners out there we'd love to know what you think is lab meat the eco and animal friendly answer to the food crisis of our increasing population and as a vegan would you eat lab meat or even if you're not vegan would you eat lab meat I'm really curious you can send us an email at dirtyvegetables at gmail.com you can check us out on our website www.dirtyvegetables.com and also our Instagram which is at Dirty Vegetables all with a Z thank you for listening thanks for listening guys bye bye bye